She said, oh, wow. She is. Thank you for that, Connie. God bless. Oh, I'm so sorry. Bob, you're supposed to be monitoring this. Well, <laughs> I figured I'd let the lady speak up. <laughs> Chuck and Lori, it's so good to see you. We've missed you. Um, and Melody, I heard that you couldn't get in, and I'm so sorry. That's that's my. That's, I just sent you an email to say I couldn't get in again, so it's nice to see yeah, your face. Yeah, God. Disregard that. We've been waiting since 6:30, but I knew you'd find us eventually. But we can't see you actually. Mm, you should be, Melody. Can you see me? I yeah, can't. my picture's on here, so you should be able to see me, Chuck. It may, maybe. Okay. Okay. Um, anyway, I'm really, really sorry. Sorry. I, I, um, two, two, it, it should show up in this. By the way, if anybody sees anybody else arrive, yes. let me know, okay? Admit. I'll, yeah. Or I'll just press admit. Yeah. Boy, I'm so glad. I need help. You all know that. I'm so glad for the help. It's getting worse and worse. Pray, pray for Suzanne more than anybody. Pray for Suzanne. Any prayers? Any prayers? Chuck, Lori, we've been praying for the two of you and since the wedding. And, and for Lauren and Eric. And, yeah. Um, any prayers tonight before we start? Michelle, it's good to see you again. Oh, good to see you too. Prayer of Thanksgiving. Yeah. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and for your presence through the day. Um, I'm especially grateful for this. I think I'm speaking for everybody, I hope, but... Um, especially grateful for Advent. All of Isaiah's readings are, um, I can't hear them without being amazed that he could have, hundreds of years before you came, that he could have described you and the effects of your coming when you did come. How anybody could not believe in you um, reading the prophets is amazing to me. Um, his, he's so intelligent. He's so gifted with his writing. He made everything so clear. How can anybody not believe? For all the readings in Advent, for all of your words to us, um, your encouragement, um, then all the occasions in which you're healing somebody to show you are present, um, the readings that encourage us to wait, to be patient, to um, fast, to make more efforts at sacrificing ourselves, for all these, um, we offer our thanks. Um, we offer um, a special thanksgiving again for Chuck and Lori and for Eric and Lauren. Um, surround that young couple with your spirit. Uh, marriages are not easy. Couples have a lot to carry in our age, so be with them. Let everything that happens to them deepen their faith and help Chuck and, <laughs> and Lori to let go particularly one of that couple, whose name I'm not naming, um, 
help them to let go and be glad. Um, be with Melody. Um, we haven't seen her in a couple weeks, my fault. Be with her and her family. I know she carries them always. Um, we ask a special blessing for friends of ours, um, particularly for Suzanne, her roommate. She just learned today that her roommate's husband has been diagnosed with cancer. And um, the prognosis right now doesn't look good. So for um, Jane and um, Peter. Peter, be with him, please. Heal him. Um, if this cancer is to progress, um, they are both on alert right now, holding each other's hands. Um, let everything that happens um, be an occasion for growing closer to you and becoming stronger in their faith um, if they have to let go for both of them. Um, um, I ask a blessing for whatever it is that's going on in the hearts of everybody here. You know them better than we know them ourselves so often. So um, let your spirit be with all of us. Um, help all of us to take what we get from these readings and make them more alive. We have to make them living in our lives. We cannot leave them in our heads. So let that be, please. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, did all of you get that little extra handout? It's just a brief summary of the class. If you're paired up, I'd ask you to, to just take one copy because I'm not sure there's enough, but I gave a very brief outline of, you know that my outlines tend to be pretty complex and heavy and detailed, and that's for those of you who want more, um, people who don't want them can skim them, and people online can do what they're going to do. But tonight I, I, um, I put together just a very, very brief outline to try to put all of John together, so it might be helpful for you to have it. Um, Hmm? Is it different than what you had online? Sorry, Ann, say it again. Is it the same one you put online? No, 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 this is, no, the one online is like the one you usually get. This one, no, it's, it's, it's just a very, yeah, that's it. It says, what does it say at the top, Bob? This isn't, outline yeah, outline. Yeah. It's just very brief. It's my effort to try to simplify John, um, I don't even know what yeah. Oh, Doc, can you, can you hand me that? Um, I'm going to read two other poems tonight that I hadn't planned on, thanks. Mm -hmm. That I hadn't planned on reading because they reflect um, the truth of, of what we experienced a couple of weeks ago when we were finishing Matthew. And that is the, that the kingdom is here. Remember Christ said that all of these things should come to pass before this generation passes away. A, a new heaven, a new earth. Um, and it seems fairly clear to me, although I've heard different readings of this, that, that Christ is talking about his death and resurrection. And I, and I asked everybody to underscore that. When he dies and um, 
comes back to life and he's risen, a whole new order enters our world. So while this is really important and it's going to go to Revelation because why did Christ leave and let us know that he was going to come again in a second coming? What's that period for? Lots of people read it, read it differently, this dispensation or this long period of waiting or trial. So we've got that ahead of us, but um, that's what he said. New heaven and new earth, um, these things will come to pass before this generation passes. He's going to die and come back to life. So it's pretty clear to me that in defeating death, in defeating sin and death, he gave everybody in the world a chance for a fullness of life that he offers in what he did. The condition of it was belief in him. And John's Christ makes that clear a number of times, and we'll see it tonight. But it's crucial to see that, and sometimes I don't think, I don't think we fully live as if that's true. In Chesterton's orthodoxy, Chesterton said, if you were just born into the world, if you're just born, it's a reason for gratitude. You weren't alive, you didn't create yourself. You weren't there, you didn't exist. We're born in the world, and even if we suffer, it should be a cause of gratitude. We're alive. And there's a hope for us that something will come of that life, if, even if we suffer. So we have every reason to be grateful and glad. That's Chesterton's natural argument. He's not appealing to our faith. That's a natural argument. We're here. With this new order that Christ brings in, he died for us and rose again. We've got an even greater reason for being grateful and glad. Yeah? Carrying that out. I don't th I'm, you know me, I hope you do, but I'm not going to sentimentalize being nice because I think being nice is one of the dangers of our age. But, um, but we've been given a reason for knowing a joy deep down that's below the surface. Um, and it's just a question how much we do, how much we really do live that, particularly if we're going through hard times. Here are two poems that reflect a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, George Herbert. Remember, Herbert, we've read these before ages ago. Herbert was a poet, an Anglican priest, in the Renaissance when there were these um, conversions, changes after the Reformation. And he's one of the first great Christian poets. And what he did with language is nothing short of amazing. He did extraordinary things. I picked out two poems because they speak to what we saw at the end of Matthew and what we're seeing here in John. George Herbert. This is one of other poems written on love. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew near to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. The unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand, and smiling did reply, who made the eyes, but I. Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You, you must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. 
I have real trouble getting through the ending of some poems. This is what I'm, you already know that. <laughs> this one's called Death. Something all of us, particularly in our modern world, run terrified from. You know, we don't want to die. Christ changed that. Do we live really understanding the change that took place? Are you guys watching that? Is there still, because I don't sometimes can't, Dave. They're okay? Yeah. Nobody's waiting? This is Death by Herbert. Death, thou wast once an uncouth, hideous thing, nothing but bones, the sad effect of sadder groans. Thy mouth was open, but thou couldst not sing, for we considered thee as at some six or ten years hence. It's always off. After the loss of life and sense, flesh being turned to dust and bones to stick. We looked on this side of thee shooting short, where we did find the shells of fledged souls left behind, dry dust which sheds no tears, but may extort, extort force us out of, out of fear of him, it. But since our Savior's death did put some blood into thy face, thou art grown fair and full of grace, much in request, much sought for as a good. For we do now behold thee gay and glad as at doomsday, when soul shall wear their new array, and all thy bones with beauty shall be clad. There we therefore we can go die asleep, and trust half that we have un unto an honest faithful grave, making our pillows either down or dust. How many of us actually look forward to death, longing for it because we know on the other side of it there will be this new raiment we saw it in the transfiguration, light, the bodies that we know them as we know them now will be changed, everything will be a glory. I'm not suggesting anybody go out and kill themselves right now. <laughs> but, okay. And our Christmas poem. In the blue bleak, or in the sorry, blue, speak up. In the bleak, in the bleak midwinter. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter, long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, breast full of milk and a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before, the oxen, ass, and camel which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim throng the air, but his mother only in her maiden bliss worshiped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give my heart. Okay. Okay. 
Which, sorry, go ahead. Yet what I can, I give Yet what I can? Yet what I can, I give What can I give Oh, sorry. Yet, thanks. Yet what I, yet what I, yet what I can, I give him? Give him, yeah. It's like the woman with the penny. Yeah? Yet what I can, or what I, yet what I can, I give him? Give my heart. I'm going to put a punctuation there. Um, okay, two things before we start. Tonight what I'd like to do is um, I'd like to focus on the signs and I am's of, um, that um, John describes. Um, but before, before we start to go over the text, I'd like to make a couple opening comments here. One of them I put on the board. Um, it's so obvious, but we live in an age which has so badly undermined it that we don't even know it. One of the axioms of St. Thomas in the medieval Catholic world, philosophically, was this. Nothing gets in the head that doesn't first get in the senses. Write that down. You're going to think this is silly, but wait a second. Nothing gets in the head that doesn't first get in the senses. The beginning of knowledge is what comes to us through our bodies. Yeah? Is that clear? Hold on to that. I mean, deeply hold on to it. Descartes changed that, and Kant after him. So the whole modern world is in its head. It doesn't begin with knowledge from the senses. You're probably going to ask, what in the world does this have to do with John? But well, just give me a minute here, okay? Descartes said he had to doubt everything because he wanted to found a new philosophy based on the sciences. That's what Descartes does. And is that famous Cartesian quote, I think, therefore I am. The basis of everything for Descartes was thinking. Hold, listen to that statement. I think, therefore I am. He makes being, I am, being, contingent on thinking, right? Thinking is principle, being not, it's secondary. I think, therefore I am. And he could have said I am, therefore I think, it would have been, that would have been closer to the truth. Because you've got to exist before you can think, right? And moreover, you have to have a body before you can think. Unless you're an angel, yes. The whole modern world turns upside down on that philosophy. Kant picked it up. Kant said, we can't know things outside of us as they are. We can only know ideas in our heads. So for Kant, we manufacture thought. We project, we project whatever's in our heads out on the world. Okay? Now, this is not a philosophy class, and I don't want to make it. But hold those two things together. St. Thomas would have said, all knowledge begins in our senses, in the body. The modern world says all knowledge begins in our heads, in our ideas. What we know are our ideas, not things. And I hope you can see the implications of that, because what it means is we live in a subjective world. Lewis was attacking that in Abolition of Man, right? Whatever we feel is what's real for us. Whatever's in my head. Try arguing with somebody who lives in their head. 
point to something factual in the world, you're going to find yourself in a standing argument. Right? Is everybody following? That's the modern world. The, the name of that philosophy is called idealistic, idealism. Because what you can know is, you can't know things. You can only know the ideas in your head. So people get ideas, they get ideologies. That's where we've been for the last several months. All these ideologies, these systems of thought. And they're presented to the world as if they're real. And everybody, most people buy them. Is everybody following you? So one of the problems of the modern world is it's not humble enough. I'm saying this so seriously. It's not humble enough to accept its bodies. It's as if we're above angelically knowing things the way angels do. Okay? Now what are the implications of that for us as Catholics? If you get rid of the body, what's the implication of that? I hope everybody sees. What's the implication if we get rid of our body? Alexis, did you have? Well, it negates Christ and the incarnation and everything. Is that clear? That's so fundamental, it's so simple, and it, who sees it? One of the implications of that philosophy will be to undermine the incarnation. Because Christ entered a body. He did everything he could to take on our human nature. You know, we've been going over this for... Okay? So Aristotle said, St. Thomas followed him, Plato does not. Plato says we've got ideas in our head. So does Descartes, so does Kant. So there's this serious undermining of the body in our modern world. It degrades it. The Protestant world degrades it. Calvin hated the body. Hated it. Take away the body and ultimately you take away Christ. John Paul's Theology of the Body. Why did he write that work? Theology of the Body. My God, it's right in front of us. So hold on to that. Here's one of the things that I want to... Um, so, Aristotle, St. Thomas would say, we can arrive at a certainty, we can have certitude in our knowledge. We can trust the things of the body. The modern idealist will say, no, you can't. Because you, you think the second senses give you something and you realize you're mistaken. You could use that same argument against ideas in your head. People get ideas in the head and they think they're right and those ideas turn out to be damaging. But Aristotle and Thomas say, Nothing gets in the mind that doesn't first get in, come to the person through the senses, okay? Here's John Paul in the opening of Fide Ratio. We read this. This is the beginning of chapter one. Underlying all the church's thinking is the awareness that she is the bearer of a message which has its origins in God himself. The knowledge which the church offers to man has its origin not in any speculation of her own, however sublime, but in the word of God which she received in faith. I want to quarrel with John Paul a little bit here. And I can't tell you how much I love him as a pope. At the origin of, so hold on, it's because it goes to this question of faith. 
And it goes to my comment to you last week that you are among the most reasonable people in the world, <laughs> even though the world doesn't see you. I hope you hold on to that because I wasn't being facetious or exaggerating. At the origin of our faith, there is an encounter unique in kind which discloses a mystery hidden for long ages, but which is now revealed, quote, in his goodness and wisdom, God chose to reveal himself and to make known to us the hidden purposes of his will, by which through Christ the word made flesh, man has access to the Father in the Holy Spirit and comes to share in his divine nature. Those are quotes from scripture, most of them. In this revelation, this is page 19, by the way, if you want to, it's, it's the beginning of chapter 1 and then page 19, a couple of pages later. In this revelation, an invisible God, out of the abundance of his love, speaks to men and women as friends and lives among them so that he may invite and take them into communion with himself. This plan of revelation is realized by deeds and words having an inner unity. The deeds wrought by God in the history of salvation manifest and confirm the teaching and realities signified by the words, while the words proclaim the deeds and clarify the mystery contained in them. Um, okay, why am I reading that? Faith has to do with those things, this is Paul's definition, those things unseen, hoped for, the substance of things unseen but hopeful, right? That's faith. That's our, I mean, that, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a definitive, it's an unquestionable definition. Um, Christ came among us. God was here. We saw him with our senses. Our faith doesn't rest on just hoping for some God out there who has not crossed this chasm, as, as it does for Judaism or um, um, Islam, yeah. God was here. We touched him, we ate with him, he taught us, he cried, he died, he grew as a child, he was helpless as a child. He couldn't do the things at 12 that he could do as 33 because he was still too young. He had to grow. If he was going to fulfill our nature, he had to go through the whole thing to come to his maturity and in his maturity, do what he did. So we've got the fullness of God here present to our senses. What does that mean for us? I'm asking this question seriously. I mean, this is so obvious and nobody, nobody, you, you remember, I mean, I've said this to you, don't overlook the obvious. Don't overlook the obvious. Most of our great insights come from taking a look at the obvious. What does that mean for us? He was real. So we're not, our faith is not a matter of something we've not seen or touched. Yes, we know him. We have a certitude. The, all the evidence is reported. It's as stupid to disbelieve in that as it is to disbelieve some of the things that Marx did, or Freud, or Darwin. We've got biographies describing what those men did. Just because they lived in the past, does that mean we shouldn't believe? The descriptions of what they did? No. Christ did these things. They're documented. The historicity of the, of the Bible cannot be doubted. The only reason the modern mind doubts it is because it, as, with a prejudice, it denies miracles. That's a prejudice. It starts believing that there are no such things as miracles. So when it goes back and reads the Bible, it, here's what I said last week. 
It has to explain away a thousand things. Think about the task of trying to make sense of every one of those miracles to explain it away. We don't have to do that. There's a reasonableness in trusting what's there and knowing there's something more as well. Right? That's the first thing that I want to... Um, now here's the structure of John. If you look at that short outline, you'll see it. There's the prologue where John says, in the beginning was the word. He describes Christ in his divine nature. And we ask the question, how in the world he could have known that? I want to come back to it again next week. There, there's the prologue. And immediately after the prologue, John goes to John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist who baptizes Christ and, and says, he has come to prepare the way. And on that day, and on the very next day, when he sees Christ walking, I think, in the marketplace, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. He knows, who told him? He knows that this is the Messiah, long awaited by the Jews, that it's God. And he will be sacrificed to the Lamb of God. That's the prologue, and then we immediately enter into the body of John, which includes, consists of, all those episodes in which Christ performs signs, the various signs that we talked about, it's on, it's on the, the more detailed outline. And there are all those statements um, in which Christ identifies himself with the Father. I am, I am, I am the door, I am the way, I am the good shepherd, remember? And the most powerful one for me is when they question him about um, who does the Messiah come from? And he says, David. And Christ has that statement where he says, um, um, how, could my, how could my Lord, when David says, my Lord, how could my Lord have come before David and after him? And he says, um, um, before Abraham was, I am. There cannot be a more explicit identification because you know those are the words that the Father spoke to Moses when he gave him. He said, when Moses said, who do, how do I call you? He said, I am that am. So there are all those occasions, they're down in the notes, they're all there, in which Christ says, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. And that particularly beautiful one where he says, before, before Abraham was, I am. Think about that. <laughs> Grammatically, because we use the past tense to explain something in the past, God's alive. He's with the Father, who is, will never die, and he will be alive after he dies. So in that wonderful statement, we have Christ giving us words that go absolutely to the center of his essence. So we've got the prologue, the body, and then we have the epilogue. And the body includes the passion, all the things that lead up to the, to the end. And then we've got the epilogue. Um, those series of episodes um, that take place after Christ ri um, rises from the dead. Um, Mary goes to the tomb, Peter and John go to the tomb, and then Christ appears to the disciples a number of times, and then he meets with, I think it's the third meeting, he, he's on the beach when the disciples have gone fishing, they're not catching anything, and he says throw the net on the right side, and they get tons of fish. They come to the beach and Christ has that um, giving of a serious commission to Peter when he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He does it three times, probably to 
match up with the three denials. I think Peter gets more and more exasperated. He says, you know I do. And Christ says, then feed my sheep. And so he gives Peter at that moment a special place that reaffirms what he did with Peter. Remember earlier when the disciples come to him and Christ says, who do they say I am? And they can't answer and he turns to Peter and Peter says, you are the Christ. So this is the special commissioning of Peter directly from Christ, okay? And John ends. Now, let me just, um, to go back to um, my, my opening remarks, nothing gets in the senses, nothing gets in the mind to give us real knowledge that doesn't first come through the senses, yeah? So we've got to, we have to hold on to our bodies. We have to give them the place that God gave them in creation. We're, we're not angels, we're humans. We might like our bodies at times, we, we still have to discipline ourselves. We, we, we have to become who God's given us to be. Nothing gets in the mind that doesn't come through the senses. We saw him, which means we can know him as a matter of knowledge, not faith. It's there. Um, and here's the question. So if you look at the structure of John, the prologue, the body, and the epilogue, there's that um, section that comes late in the body when the I am statements, I think, pretty much quiet, and Christ repeatedly says to the disciples, um, they will kill me. I will not be with you very long. And they're getting distressed about it. And he says, do not worry. I will send the comfort. I have to go. I have to, I have to go to make this good because something better will come. Um, and he leaves. Okay. Now my question is, what does that do for faith then? And why does Christ do that? Why does he leave? Why doesn't he just stay? That's nice. I'm going to put in a request for bleak midwinter. We should sing it. Not now. Let's answer this question. Not now. I'm just saying. I know. Okay. Come on, you guys. What? What does it mean for our faith that he leaves? And why, why he says repeatedly, I mean, he really is emphatic about this, do not um, be distressed. Um, you'll be persecuted the way I am, will be. Um, take comfort. Um, um, you will learn things from the counselor that you did not learn from me. He will show you all truths. Um, why does he do all that? What's going on? And what does that do for our faith? Yeah. You're saying, why did he leave? You mean when he left to go to heaven? Yeah. His right. Yeah. Well, as, it's kind of like uh, he was wanting us to fly away from the nest so we would grow up on our own. Because as long as he was here, they were going to depend on him. And also, he said, uh, that he had to go so that the paraclete could come. So that was another thing because now each of us is to be imbued with well not, that's not a good word. It's a good word. Given the power that he has. He had. He who? Christ the Spirit? Christ. Christ. We were to be given that same power 
through the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he had completed his mission. Yeah. What could the Spirit do that Christ couldn't? Well, the Spirit could enter us and set us on fire. You don't think Christ could do that with the disciples? But he, it, the Spirit is omnipresent. Uh, Christ in his incarnation, I suppose, I mean, it was different after his resurrection, but still he was in one place. Right. Right? The spirit isn't limited by a body. Christ is. And by the way, just as an extension of that, Christ takes his body. This is so amazing to me, and I just... Christ takes his body back. It's one of the mysteries that Dante calls our attention to at the end of the Paradiso, when he looks into the Trinity. Christ takes his body back. How do you... How does a finite body conform to an infinite divine nature, the Son, when he returns. I hope everybody will enjoy that mystery, because to me it's one of the most, I think it's probably the most profound mystery of our faith. But one of, the, one of the nice things about thinking that way is he takes a body back, so he still relates to us as a human, but somehow it's accommodated to an infinite nature, which means he can feed the Eucharist forever. Right? You, if you keep him limited in his body, there's no way he could feed him because he says, "Eat my, you know, eat my body, um, drink my blood." If he returns and take assumes again his infinite nature that he had as a son, somehow with the body, whatever that means, um, he can feed people forever. I don't even know what that means. It, to, to me, the mystery is so profound. What does that do to our faith? He leaves. The Spirit comes because the Spirit can touch everybody on this side of the world, on the other side of the world. Christ could never have done that. He's in a finite body. He leaves. The Spirit is infinite. He's there, he's here, he's there. Um, and remember what da in Dante, because Dante was so amazing. This Remember when Dante uh, um, is in the upper level, levels of the Paradiso, remember he's, he looks back at the still point and he sees the earth and he sees God. So we've got the combination of motion and still point. And he looks out at the, at the um, Imperium and the souls there. And he said, um, um, there's, where natural law no longer governs, there's, no more, there's neither nearness nor distance to take away. Where, where, because natural law doesn't exist there anymore. Because you know, according to natural law, nearness and distance affects us. If somebody's a mile away, we can hardly see them. Natural law doesn't apply. We're in a, we're in an, um, what's the word? In, not incompatible, incommensurable. We're in an incommensurable order. There is not time and space as we know it. In the Paradiso, we saw that somebody could be here and somebody could be millions of miles away, but there is no time and distance. There is no millions of miles. We're in an incommensurable order. We're in an order of first causes, directly, where we see God directly, natural law does not apply. We're in another order. So there is no longer any nearness or distance. Okay? So Christ is there. That's that order. 
We live in an order of secondary causes, of contingencies. Things happen, accidents happen. We have a degree of free, free will. Yeah. What, my question was, what does this do to our faith that he left? Mary gave an answer. Anybody add to that? How is it different from when he was here? Um, because you could see him, so you didn't rely so much on faith uh, because he was there. But now we have to grow and learn, and trust is probably a big thing for me. Hope. Is everybody clear? He's no longer here. The point that I was making before. And I'm just sorry that our church doesn't make it more. John Paul did everything he could to say faith and reason have to be held together. One of the reasons we can take that seriously is because Christ was present to our senses. We can know him. That's not a matter of faith. He's here. The faith was that Christ could do these things. People kept coming to him in faith, wanting to be healed. What happens when he goes? Then our faith is going to be really tested because he's not around visibly performing these miracles. Now our faith, we're going to find out what our faith is. Because exactly as Mary said, he's, he's not visible to our sight anymore. So this whole question of faith and reason is a profoundly important one for our faith, for our, for our church, okay? Let me stop here. Those are just um, some... Principle. The, the last thing I want to say before we take a look at the Bible, one of the amazing things that stood out to me when I was reading um, John that I think is more eas easily taken away from John than Matthew, Christ is absolutely selfless. I mean, I, we, I think we think that without even thinking about it. But if we think about it, it's a pretty amazing thing, truly. In, in John, we get things, Matthew never touches this. Over and over and over again in the last quarter of, the, of John, Christ keeps saying, I am, I am, I am, I am. Um, in me you see the Father. I, I don't do this on my own. I'm doing it because I'm doing the will of the Father. The authority I have is from him. If you're in me, it's because you're in him. Everything he does is to give credit to the Father. He keeps saying, in me you see him. He never does anything for himself. It's one of the most perfect images of the Trinity. If the Trinity is each of the persons loving the other for that other's good, and receiving that person giving, that's what Christ, he's implying a Trinity. There is this perfect union between him and the Father. And over and over again, he says, I'm doing nothing for myself. I'm doing it for my Father. It's a perfect obedience. It's an amazing. I mean, it's right in front of us so we can overlook it. He's divinely selfless. <laughs> yeah? Okay, let me stop. Any questions or comments before we look at the signs and the I am's? Heather, you've got something on your mind. Something's in there cooking. There's steam between you and Alexis. There always is. By the way, I'm going to, because I hope I'm going to, you know, when, when I asked you how did John know these things, and the two of you were smiling, I was going, what, you know, and you're enjoying the image of John being on um, Christ's breast and knowing him that way, which is a lovely image. 
um, this is getting ahead and I shouldn't do this, but I'm going ahead anyway. But the, the gospel end with John saying, this is my gospel, you can believe it. He's writing it. That's, that's challenged by critics. Some people say it's, it's added additionally, you know, later. We, but it ends in our, in, in, our, in our edition, the Catholic edition, and I think most editions, with John authenticating what he's written. He, he is eyewitness. So he knew Christ, this, the, the point that I tried making last week, if the, the, none, nobody in the synoptics does this, John does it over and over and over again, he keeps um, describing Christ in these I am moments. And the, what I tried suggesting last week is that he seems to know that connection between Christ and the Father more deeply than anybody. He sees the Father present. So he's a man who has a sense of the divine nature of things that's buried in the thing right in front of us. Think about the poets we've read, like Hopkins or um, um, Schnackenberg or Herbert, you know, um, who find something divine in the present moment. It's there. John sees that, um, um, and he was the one Christ loved more than the others. So I just have to wonder, it's a question, I can't answer it, but it, if Christ loved him more than the others, did John feel that, and was he touched by this love in a way that helped him have that knowledge of divine things that we don't quite see the same way in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Are you following me? Is that obscure? Because I asked the question, how in the world could John have known all that stuff? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, you know. But some people seem to see more than others. Um, Christ, John loved Christ. He, he, was, he was ahead of Peter in the chase to the tomb. We've got a, next week we'll talk about what, why Peter goes in first, but John loved Christ a lot, and Christ loved he, um, I think he wept. Or, or he got tender with him anyway. Um, so, um, when we're reading John, we've got to be aware that with Christ, we're made aware, we're invited into the kingdom. Okay. Now, one last thing before we start, John. There are two opposite effects of this experience of Christ revealing the kingdom. The kingdom is there. The Father is there. We're seeing the kingdom in all of its aspects. There's two opposite effects of what he does. What are they? Two opposite effects on people. What are they? Mm -hmm. Bob, did you have... Did you have a choice to believe or not? Say what? What happens if you do believe? And then you have the promise of eternal life. Joy, peace. Those are his words. I give you joy. I give you peace. Um, what happens if you don't? Because lots, the Jews, lots of them, pursue him to kill him. So there's two opposite effects. Yeah. I think if you, if you believe, you, 
you have a transformation within yourself. But if you don't, you just go back to what you were. Yeah, and going back to what you were may may involve you in killing Christ, in killing God. The, the Jews were the most religious, truly religious people because they had a relationship directly with God. It wasn't the, myth, the mythic world of Homer or Virgil. This is God, and the Jews loved him. At the end of Matthew, remember, he says, you don't know God, you don't know the law, you say you do, you're not living. If you did, you'd be living differently. They're going to kill him. They're going to kill God. In Matthew, <laughs> that's really nice. In Matthew, he says, this is in chapter 21. This is when he knows that the, um, the Jewish leaders and some of the Jews are, are planning to kill him. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Remember, he came for the house of Israel. That house was built up over time. That house was constructed. That's why it's called the house of Israel. He's come for the house of Israel. The stone that the builders rejected there has become the cornerstone. By the Lord has this, <clears throat> by the Lord <coughs> has this been done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. The one who falls on this stone will be dashed to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. He talks about sending them into fire. In John, that was towards the end of Matthew, in John, um, he asked those around him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he that I may believe him in? He's asked. He said, Lord, I believe. Uh, or Christ says, you have seen him, you have seen him. And it is he who speaks to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Um, this is the, the man he healed who had been blind from birth. For judgment, here's the line I wanted to get to. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. Yeah? Lots of people came to him. They didn't see, they received their sight. I think he's talking about people who are also not blind, who came to see him as God. They, they were raised under the Torah. They believed in God, but they didn't believe in Christ. But they believe in him, so they see him now. So I don't think he's just talking about natural blind. He's talking about people who believe in God, but who, who don't stay there, who see him as God. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. Judgment. And those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. What's the condition of hell, as we read it in Dante? Huh? You don't see. Those who have lost the good of the intellect, they do not see that they don't see. They're blind. Right? They go on in their obdurate way. That's the condition of hell. They continue to do what they did in life. They just do not see. But that's a blindness that's willfully chosen. God has come. He's revealed himself. He revealed himself to our senses, not just to faith. We saw him. We lived with him. We ate with him. He taught us. He loved us. Um, he died for us. I came to this world that those who do not see may see, 
and that those who see may become blind. So at the end of Matthew, we have this pretty serious condemnation. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people that will produce its fruit. The one who falls in the stone will be crushed. Um, those who believe in him will see, they'll be given sight. Those who not will become blind. And we see the effects of that. They will kill him. So, okay, let's, I want to look at the, um, the, uh, God, sorry. I've got to get up because I get, sorry, it's getting too. Father said to me last week, because I groaned when I got up from my chair. So when people start groaning when you get up from a chair, it's a real sign you're getting old. Thanks, Father. <laughs> Any comments on these sort of basic, obvious things? <laughs> yeah, go. Yeah. Whereas he was more impressionable. Yeah. Don't know, but I mean, it's a question to. There's something going on there at the tomb. You know, I, I, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until we do it. But there's something going on between John and. Because at the end, I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this quickly because I want to. At the very end, when they run to the uh, tomb, and, and Peter says. What are you going to do with this one? Who will he remain behind, or something like that? And Christ says, "What's that to you?" You know, Christ has just commissioned Peter, "Feed my sheep." It's the second serious commissioning, not John. There's a serious distinction, and when and Peter says, "What about him?" And he knew Christ loved him, and Christ says, "What's that to you?" Christ, he's. Stop being so curious and letting yourself get distracted. Mind your business. That's a pretty, it's not a rebuke, it's not an open rebuke, but he's close to it. Um, there's something going on with Peter and John that asks for a look here, but. Uh, any other questions before? I want to look at the signs and the IMs. No, no, no comments. Heather, you've got something. What's, no? No, okay, okay, okay. to what she just said about John. Also the fact that he lived with Mary. You know, I think that has to... Say again? Start over? The fact that John lived with Mary, with the mother of God, yeah. that has to have made an impact even later. In yeah, yeah. And he doesn't write the gospel until later, so yeah. 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 Because she would have had insight. You mean being, living with her? Yeah. Yeah. Certain ponderings of her heart. Living with uh, one who has no sin has to be incredible. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I'd like to just if you if you look at the notes, they may help, but you don't have to go there. Um, 
You know that John makes a point of describing what he calls signs. The other gospel writers don't do that. They show Christ performing miracles. And, but um, if you look at my notes on the second page, you'll see um, um, a new birth in signs. Nicodemus, John, Christ, um, the baptism. But we've got these signs. Let me, let me just to start it so we get John's language. In chapter 2, the opening, um, the opening of 2, on the third day there was a marriage at Cana. You know what happens. They have no wine, Mary says, and um, Christ says to his mother, Oh, woman. <laughs> That's not very tender, but I mean, it's just, it's so me. He's God, you know. This is his mother, but he's got he's got something else on his mind. But he serves her, so he um, he obeys her. Oh, what have I to do with um, what have you to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to his servants, "Do whatever he tells you." Six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said, fill the jars with water. They lifted it and he said, now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, um, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. That's the first. Um, turn to 446. Um, this is the account of Christ healing um, the officer's son, if you remember. This is at the end of four. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. As he was going down, his servants met him, said that his son was living. So he asked them the hour when it happened, and it, it makes him realize that um, what Christ did was real. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all um, his household. This was now the second sign. Now, I'll just um, go over these quickly. The, the exchange with the Samaritan woman is not treated as one of the signs. It's interesting to me. He doesn't perform a miracle as such, but in a way he does, because when they talk, um, he makes it clear that she's, got, she's um, got a husband in the house who's not her husband, and she's had five others. And he has no way of knowing that, and because he speaks the truth to her, she believes. So it's not like the other miracles, but I just want you to keep that in there. But the other ones which are identified as signs is the healing of the man at um, Beth, Bethsaida, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, the healing of the blind man, and the raising of Lazarus, which is the last. I want to go through some of these with this question in mind. We've been saying that Christ is the revealer of mysteries. He's revealing the Father and everything he does. So in one sense, the kingdom is present. It's there. It's not the timeless order in heaven. The order of first causes that I was trying to describe a few minutes ago, you know, um, 
There is neither nearness nor distance adds or takes away in that place. You're in the immediate presence of God. It's a different order. We're here in where the natural law does apply. Um, so Christ is performing these miracles. Um, he he, perform, he chain, transforms the water into wine. He heals the officer's son. Let's just take those as the first two and then we'll look at some other. What do those reveal about the kingdom? The very first and the very second. If the kingdom is present and what he's doing is revealing the kingdom, it gives us a glimpse into the kingdom. What are we learning about the kingdom for what he does? Can we say anything about the fact that the first one is a wedding? I mean, does that say? What does that say? Mary, are you shaking your head? Go ahead. Or brings forth life. Life and love, yeah. right? So that's between all of them, just like in a family. And so, Jesus I, is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. Yeah. In one sense, it how to put this? Validate isn't strong enough. Affirms. It affirms the absolute the absolute primacy of love in our life as humans, that we are meant to love and be loved. So it, in, in, in one sense, it images the Trinity, in which case each of the persons is loving another and being loved. They're sharing that love. It's a freely given love. It's what John Paul talks about in Theology of the Body. And it can, it can when couples are, um, what's the word, fruitful, that's not the... Within, um, when they're capable of having a child, they can bring life into the world, so um, creation can continue. So I don't, I myself don't think this is an accident. That this is the first sign. It, it, in its, in, by, by very, by the very nature of the marriage itself, it's confirming the central importance of marriage in our life as humans. And I don't think Christ, Christ would ever. God, I don't think Christ would ever say you have to get married. Paul says. If you if you're not married, don't get married. Um, because marriages are not easy, but, it, but he really is affirming the, the role of marriage. Um, but isn't there something also about Mary asking him to perform the first miracle? Mm -hmm. How did she, other than the Immaculate Conception, but how did she know that this was his time or that he could even do that? She didn't, yeah. Well, she, 
I guess she's asking for his help. So he must have some sort of inclination that something could happen. Yeah, well, you may. I think it's a God thing. It's one of those things you just look at it and say. Slow down. Slow down. Speak up, King. I think God, it was, it's like one of those situations where God kind of set this up, right? He prodded someone to talk to Mary at a wedding and tell her this problem that they're having. And that would not have been the normal thing that would have happened. She wasn't mother of the bride. She wasn't mother of the, of the son she, of she the bride. She was related to the mother of the bride. So there was a So she was trying to help her out. So they but, go to Mary. But I think that shows the importance of Mary and how Mary is going to be the intercessor. For all of us, because she's the she's the mother she's the mother of the king, and in ancient times people would have clearly understood. Yeah, yeah. But the mother of the king always had the ear of the king and could intercede for other people. Does she know at this point? Does she know at this point that her son would qualify or be entitled to the word or the title king at this point? Yeah. I think she would. I think she knew her scripture. Mary knew her scripture. And the, Boy, the rationalistic side of me is coming out because I'm... <laughs> Mary knew her scripture. She knew. She knew what? Mary knew her scripture. That's true. She grew up in the temple. Mary knew all the scripture. Okay, let me... She was a virgin who gave birth. Physical nature. Right. And the conclusion, sorry, Ann, where's that going? We were, we were talking about uh, how what we know through our senses. Mm -hmm. And these miracles were not just something kind of woo 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 out there. I mean, these were things that people could, could really relate to because they were physical. Mm -hmm. like it's right. A physical change. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Every, one, everybody was upset because they were running out and they weren't getting served and what have you. So there was something wrong here that needed to be settled. But, but this one is so different from the rest of the signs. For me, it's always struck me that you know, we often think that um, should I pray for for this? Should I pray for me to? to make this golf swing and well. <laughs> but here, the, the first miracle that was recorded about Jesus is he's not curing someone from blindness. He's not... He's not even ready to do it himself right now. Saving from social embarrassment. Yes. So this, he's saying... There's one more rationalist in the room besides me. My kingdom touches every aspect of your life. And that, that could be too. You bring in the poor lower class to the upper class and bringing them together in yeah. a sense of love yeah. and respect. So maybe, I don't know. We don't know. I mean, right now we're speculating a lot. Let me just give you a sort of down-to-earth rational side of me. And I, I hope you know me well enough to know there is a real mystical side to my character. I mean, I, the, or I wouldn't be doing this. But I've always looked at this as an example of the way in which the woman 
is more instinctively social than a man, just um, socially ready to be gracious and serve. I just think that's more instinctive to women. How much grace played into it with, you know, God, I can't say. But I, I myself have no question that this is Mary acting on that, the women, women have a f certain, and I don't want to use myself because I can't, I'm, I want to try to keep out as much trouble as I can right now. Women have a far more instinctive sense of socially serving in, you know, a child bringing in to, there's something that women carry at a deeper level, I think, than most men. So my own take on this is a little bit more rationalistic than, and it's not to deny this other stuff, but I'm a little bit skeptical of it, but I have no doubts in my mind that, and I, I feel even stronger because of Christ's response. Mary's far more socially given. She wants to serve. Christ's response even underlines that. That's not my time. What are you doing? You know, he's, he's about his father's business. She has no clue about that, or she wouldn't ask him. This is, this is Christ. How far along in her knowledge she is of him right now? Up in the air. But clearly Christ is not ready for this. I mean, it's like, almost like he objects, but he's obedient. He serves her. And, wait, just one more. And it initiates his signs, the miracles he's going to perform. This is the, this is the opening into those, the, the wedding at Cana. And for me, it's not an accident that it's a wedding for all the reasons that we've been talking about. Um, but Heather, go. She's completely a mother. I mean, really. I mean, you know, she's saying to her son, I, I, I cannot see any ruffles or arguments or irritation, mother and son. You know, when he's 13 and they couldn't find him and she scolds him, it's a mild scolding. But the description is he goes off and is obedient to, you know. Um, I myself don't see him testing her. It seems this. Oh, sorry. Yeah. 
We've got to go on. We've got other things. It's interesting to um, it's interesting to think about other implications of this. Sorry. Yeah, I don't. Or does it mean how will this change our relationship? Take a minute and think. What will it do to us? We can go on and on. This is not good. Yeah. At a simple level, I've always thought of it as when he says, and I know that. I mean, I'm listening to all the other readings that you guys have been experiencing throughout your life. You know that you carry into this, and um, when he says, "My hour is not yet come." I've always seen this as a kind of moment of wonder that he has some sense of something to come or he wouldn't have said that. And he's got that on it. What's interesting to me, I, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm interested to hear some, something stubborn me is not going to give this up. Um, uh, my hour has not yet come. She doesn't have a clue what's ahead of her. She can't see the cross or you know, what she's going to have to suffer. Um, when he says, um, my, what's this to you? My hour's not yet come. He's got a sense already at this time of where he's going. I, I don't see it. That, I mean, we've been given nothing to lead us to suppose that he's taught her or prepared her. I mean, we just don't know. But... Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, there's so much. Boy, does this just open doors? We can go on. Yeah, what does he know? What does she know? You know, how how much do we pull together because it's pulled together for us? Did they all know it? I just, boy, right now we're opening doors everywhere with questions. Let me go to the next one. What do we learn from the next, the second, the second mirror? Wait, I just want to underscore this. What, how, whatever understanding we bring to this. His first miracle is a, a wedding. And uh, here's, here's, sorry. I'm, one of the reasons that I want to hold on to that is because of this. Um, Christ is aware that he's going to do something. It, it's like most men who've got plans, you know, what they're going to do in their heads. And suddenly his mother says this. And he has to serve when he wasn't planning on doing that. So, and, and we're going to find that element of surprise at, on the human side of him over when he, when he goes to the centurion, when he talks to the Samaritan woman, you know, or when, he, when he, he says to the disciples in Matthew, go only to the house of the lost sheep. And shortly after that, he's denouncing the lost sheep and saying, I'm taking this away from you. So the human side of him seems to, um, on several occasions, be surprised and he finds himself having to do something so that even though he's God and he'll perform things as God we can't forget that he's human and here you've got his mother doing something he wasn't prepared to do but he has to serve her let's do the next one what do we what does this real reveal about the kingdom the official asks him to save his son 
He says, go, he saved. The man goes home and on the way his servants greet him and inform him that his son's well. And he realizes that he, his son was healed just at that time when Christ said, what do we learn about the kingdom here? Moreover, the farmer knew that that was the hour your son will live and he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign. What do we learn about the kingdom from this? Go, yeah. Two things occur to me. The first is that even though the body is super important, the word is also important. So when Jesus says your son is healed, he didn't have to be physically present for the boy to be healed. He, his word was enough. Yep. Second, the fact that the man's faith, the man, it says he believed the word and started on his way, and then we find out that the boy was healed. What if he hadn't believed? I mean, it seems like the fact that that comes first, his faith, and it's repeated again in the New Testament again, yeah. that faith is what um, makes the miracles efficacious. I mean, his belief. Or, or combine Christ's word and the belief. Um, the faith. Because when he was in his hometown, he couldn't do many miracles because people didn't believe yeah. that he could. And so the man's faith made the word efficacious. Yeah, even though Christ wasn't present to do it. Yeah. Or right. Anybody else? What does that say about the kingdom? Can we just extrapolate out from that? What does that say about the kingdom? Really, really cool. <laughs> better than 2020. Yeah. If he restored his arm, that arm never went bad. <laughs> Hip or whatever. Uh, to me, if Jesus performed a miracle on something like on this boy, he probably never got sick again in his entire life. Yeah. So to me, it's abundance. It's abundance? Yeah. yeah. The kingdom is abundance above and beyond what I could ever dream. Yeah. Anybody want to add anything to what's been said? It's spreading because his whole family and the whole household believes. So consequently, that means again that the growth in heaven is going to be there because of all the believers. Mm -hmm. I think we have to ask. Yeah, good point, Mary. Really good point. Too often we don't ask questions or we don't ask for, yeah. Part of the, the power of this, the wonder of it for me is, um, Alexis touched on it, that Christ didn't have to be present and people were healed. It goes to the point that I was making earlier, what happens to our faith when Christ leaves. This guy didn't have to be present or bring Christ there. Um, you know, um, Centurion had the same kind of faith, and Christ's response to that was, I, there's nobody in Israel in the, in, the, in the chosen house, the chosen people, who has a faith like that. So it's the combination, I think, of, of I thought the way you put it, Alexis, the word, the, eff, the, eff, the eff, efficacy of the word, combined with the belief that makes this possible. Christ didn't have to be there, so it shows, it shows how generous heaven is 
if one believes or asks, um, somebody doesn't have to be present, which says to me, how many times do miracles happen that we don't even see? You know, we may be asking privately to ourselves. I don't know. We just don't know. What this parable shows is um, no proximity. Christ is not there. That's not required. Um, so once again, we're learning something about the nature of the kingdom and God and his generosity, you know, what he does for people if they will believe. Let me just take a, a couple more because I'm, I'm determined to get out on time. Um, what about um, the feeding of the 5,000 or the walking on water? Let's take the walking on water. What does that reveal about the kingdom? Yeah. Um, what does that tell us about him? How does that relate back to the prologue? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Nothing was made that was with, without him. He, he made everything. He was the means of creation. Is everybody making that connection? or Go ahead. As creator, I guess he has control of it. Yeah. He's the master of it. Big surprise. I mean, if you accept the premise, in the beginning was the Word and nothing was made, you know, without him. Um, he's the master of creation. But th what that does is enlarge the ironies of the crucifixion. He made everything. He made Mary, and Mary's nursing him. He's absolutely helpless as a babe. He created her. He's master of creation. He walks on water. He calms the storms. He heals everywhere. So he's... he's He's, it's, it's beautiful. He's restoring nature to what, its physical nature to what it was. He's got control over all of it. He's the one who made it. And yet, he subjected himself to death. And the father loved his creation enough to let his son go through all this. Um, so the mysteries of the kingdom are just opening. I mean, it's an extraordinary place into this. Um, um, let me just take the last one quickly because I think everybody's, everybody's already going to... The raising of Lazarus, what does that tell us about the kingdom? Heather, go ahead. Yeah, go. Back that up. Because Jewish law said at the time. No, back that up with scripture. Because uh, I think you can. So I'm asking you to do it here. Uh, three days out of the temple. He had to show glory to God. Yeah. God revealed him well, but everybody knows he could do that. Yep. To raise a man from the dead, this would have been the first 
Yep. And if he got there within the three days, there could have been doubt that Lazarus was actually yeah. dead. The words that I was thinking of, Heather, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou heardst me, but I had said this on account of the people. So he's so aware right now of um, the timing of this and the importance of doing it at the right moment and aware that God is aware of all of this too. But anyway, I don't want to, you go ahead, go back. Okay. And just the idea that God has a plan, even though we may not always see it. Like Mark and Mary didn't see Yeah. So they react to him in just absolutely, and so much so that it moves him to cry with them because they're so, even though he knows what he's about to do, yep. he is moved because of their, their, their grief and their emotion. <laughs> this is so fun. Say, Bob, say, sorry, say you're coming again. What? Did he have to wait? Oh, sorry, go, go ahead. So he waits because if he would have raised Lazarus before them, then people would have been able to say, well, he didn't really raise Lazarus from the dead because Lazarus was dead. Let me read it, and, and then you pick it up. I want, to read, I, want, I want everybody to hear just quickly. Um, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, where have you... Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind men, have kept this man from dying? So couldn't he have done it? I mean, it goes to your question. Why didn't he spare him then? If he could have. He's got, I mean, it's becoming clear. The, the picture of God is becoming clearer and clearer with each episode. Um, Jesus wept, so the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could he not have opened the eyes of the blind, kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. It says, Take the stone away. Jesus said, um, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you would believe, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted the eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou... You know, and then he says, um, Lazarus, come out, and he does. So go, go ahead. I think that answers your question, doesn't it, Bob? Well, but I still think it's a foretelling what Jesus has got to go through, and I believe that's also why he was crying. Because well, and he, also that... Uh, Yeah. This this really is a pre, yeah prefiguration of the resurrection. I mean, and, um, Martha said to Jesus, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died." I mean, he knows that Christ did. 
And even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha, so I know he will rise again in the resurrection. So they believe in that in the next life. But for him to raise somebody from the dead here is more than healing a hand or doing sight because dead's the last obstacle. Um, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes. So hold on to this thing about what I said. Christ left and sent the advocate. So faith is going to be hard-pressed more then, afterwards, because he's not around. So, so much of what's going on right now is revealing the kingdom, knowing that he's going to leave. That's why I think why he takes so much time in the last chapters. He, he spends a lot of time with the disciples, encouraging them, warning them, preparing them, you know, to be without him. Um, any last comment? Because I'm going to, I want to turn in the few minutes we have left to the I am's. Any comments on any of the signs, on what he's doing and how they reveal the kingdom? Every sign, in a sense, can be looked at as revealing a different aspect of the kingdom. It shows the nature of heaven, what God is doing. So it's right there. And the amazing thing, the amazing thing is, you know, because I said at the beginning, um, nothing gets in the mind that doesn't first get in the senses. Everybody's seen this. It's real. It's historically real. It's there. But Christ leaves, and now people are going to be faced with real challenges to their faith because he's not around. And you, you know that there's a lot of people in the modern world who's simply going to dismiss this stuff and say, forgery, changed, rewritten, didn't happen that way. Um, so everything that Christ is doing is, for the most part, present to people. So even, even if we didn't see the boy healed, we see the father engaging Christ and learning himself that he was healed. So we know he doesn't have to be there for the healing to happen. So the, the more you look at that, the more you have to say, this is an amazing kingdom. God's an amazing God. Um, I read too that uh, the Jews, at the, you know, they believe that the first three days that that person can actually be resuscitated, that the soul didn't leave the body. But at that fourth day, there was no hope. Yeah. So that could be part two. Yeah. Why he waited till. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, there can't be a doubt. I mean, he, he raised him from the dead. And that's the last, if I'm not mistaken, that is the last public miracle he performs. It's the last of the signs in John. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, can we just take a look at a couple of the I am's and do the same thing? And I do, I do, we don't, I want to watch our time here. Um, I'm including the Samaritan woman at the, the um, the well, even though it's it's not taken as one of the I am's, but Christ's response to her is, "You." When she says, "We worship Abraham and that father," Christ says, "You will worship the Father," and she believes. That's not one of the, but I just I think it's an important episode to keep in mind. Um, he heals the man at the sheep gate, um, and he broke the Sabbath, and he said he was the son of the Father. So he claims to be the son of the father. That's two laws broken for the Jews. He healed a man on the Sabbath, 
and he calls himself the son of God. For the Jews that was blasphemy so that on the basis of that they are more than serious now to kill him. So he healed somebody and he says um, he was the son of the father. Um, the son, he says, done nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the father doing. That's in um, chapter 5. I have come down from heaven to do the will of my father. Chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Nothing is going on that Christ does that doesn't have its root in the father. All Christ is doing is revealing him. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And he said before, you didn't choose me, I chose you. This is the action of God. Christ is, in a sense, ministering. He's, he's God coming down to enact what the Father's given him to do. The bread of life discourse at Capernaum. You all know that this discourse, this took place a year before the Last Supper. Is everybody aware of that? Because I think sometimes people don't and they'll, they'll confuse it. This took place a year earlier. This is the bread of life. It's, we don't get to the Last Supper until a year later, but it's there that he has that discourse, and it's then when the disciples get uncomfortable because he says, unless you eat of my body and drink my blood. The bread of life discourse at Capernaum. I live in the Father. Those who eat me, um, if you don't believe in me, he says, Believe in the works that you may know the Father is in me. Over and over and over again, he's saying the kingdom is here. Why is this so important? God, it just stuns me. Who did he come for? The Jews, at the center of their belief, was the Father. It's just stunning to me. Everything he's doing is to say, this is your love. Here it is. Over and over. Why does he keep doing that? If, if anything would have moved the Jews, it would have been the Father. That was the center of their life. Moses took the tablets. What do I call you? Tell them I am that am. The Father has been central to everything they do. And they don't know him. He keeps saying in every one of these, every one of these exchanges, there's at least a dozen. A dozen. The bread of life, I live in the Father. After he rises again, he's lifting, he says, um, they will know that he is one with the Father, and because they're one with him, they will be one with the Father. Believe the works that you may know the Father's in me. He prays to the Father. After he raises Lazarus, he says, thank you, Father, for doing this. After the Lazarus sign, crowds thickened the... The Jews are determined to kill him. Christ asked the Father to save him from the hour, but he says, for this purpose I have come out of heaven. The Father, the Father replies, I have glorified it. Obviously the Father's <laughs> been absolutely involved in everything he does. There he speaks openly to his Son. He says, Christ says again, I am in the Father, the Father's in me. I go to the Father. If you ask of the Father, he loves you. He didn't say, get it from me. He keeps saying, the Father, the Father. There's nothing he does for himself. I've said this to you that you may have peace. Let me stop here. We'll, we'll finish, John. I just want to end with this question, because what do these I am statements reveal about the kingdom? 
again, what are we learning about? Wait, let me put this, if I can put this more emphatically. Before Christ came, we were either in a mythic world, it could have been Buddhism, Hinduism, it could have been Judaism. Islam doesn't come for centuries yet. People lived in a world in which the gods were separated from them. In Homer, we get a mythic treatment of the gods coming down. We've read that together, the Iliad, the Odyssey. But God is not real. It doesn't take on a body. God is Zeus or Jupiter, you know, um, or it can be one of the Hindi gods. Um, but there's the separation between this world and the other. That separation was closed when God visited Moses on Sinai, right? He appeared, gave Moses the tablets. There could have been no greater confirmation of the importance of the Jewish people in history than that moment, because it's clear they're called out. They've had an immediate contact with God, not a mythic world. We're not in any of the other mythic worlds. We're not in Hinduism. We're not in um, Olympus with Homer's world, you know, the Greek world or the Roman world. God was present, and he gave him the commandments. So the Jews have a special place. That place only exists because of their ties with the Father. He is central to their life. It's what distinguishes Judaism from every other religion in the world. Right? I'm not making that up. You guys know that, right? Then suddenly Christ comes into the world, says he's God, and these people begin to hate him because he's a human. He's not something else. If you ever had a reason for disbelieving Christ, it would be he's a human. He's not a god. He's a human. The Jews have every reason not to believe in this man. And yet he begins doing all of this stuff and gradually people realize that there's something they didn't see before because he keeps saying, this is the Father, if you see me. So everything he does in these I am statements is to make the Father present. So what do we look, what do we, what do we learn about the kingdom from all of these? Heather, go ahead. I think they never the, call him father. And even if you listen to Jews today, they will call him God. They never say God the Father. They never say Father. He's just... I'm going to go back on that because I think they did, but I may be mistaken. Um, I know they knew him as Yahweh. He's the father of the children. I'm, 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 almost, I'm, I'm going to go back and check because I want to be careful. I think he, he was. They were unified under him because he was their father of all of them. But I'm, I'm going to check. I'm going to check. Well, in the canticle of Zechariah, no, it's the Mary's canticle. Mary's canticle. Mary's canticle. Mary's canticle. Mary's canticle. She refers to our father Abraham. I'm almost sure, but, I, but I'm going to check because it's, it's too important. When Jesus taught the Our Father that he actually called God Father, wasn't that a big deal? considered diminutive. Except for the Jews, it wouldn't have been diminutive because they're... Well, let me check on that because that's a... See, I thought they felt that God spoke to Abraham and through the, the prophets and ancestors through that. So they related to that as their father. Right? But they knew... That to that meaning, sorry, Mary, to that being what? Those words that were spoken, the history of Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, you know, Moses, all that down through the years... 
I understood that they because they'd say my father Abraham, our father Moses. Right. Just a genealogy. Yeah. Because the Jews still, if you look at it, like they're they're still separated from God because there's always a mediator between them and God. They're not allowed to go into you know the holy of holies to be with God. And when Jesus comes, that all changes because then suddenly we can receive Him. We can we can visit the tabernacle where He is. They were never able to do that. That to me, I mean, yeah, had to go right, right, right. Yeah, but that 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 in itself isn't proof that they didn't believe in the Father or Yahweh or you know. I want to I want to look that up. The holy was a sacred place and all that you're describing is faithful to that. I'm going to look up this. I've got a um, I'm almost sure that he was but Christ is certainly making it emphatic here as if it were understood because he does it again and again and again. Um, he says in Matthew you, you don't you, he, he doesn't use the word father there he says you claim to know the law and you clearly don't. That's the basis of your life. They receive the law from God and he said you don't know God. Here he keeps saying, you know the Father, <clears throat> as if they had a special meaning for them. I've always taken it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to look that up now. But in what way do these I am statements, what do these I am statements reveal about the mysteries of the kingdom? Because the whole point of what we've been doing for the last hour is Christ revealed the mysteries. I mean, that was my opening, opening on this. He was present as something real in a body. God was here. So this can't be just a matter of faith. We touched him for all the things I said. But he leaves. The people who approached him in his time came to him in faith. All of them that we've seen. Christ could not have done what he did if they didn't have faith. But he's still present. You know, Up until that time, God was always, always separate. He was removed. He was of another order. That order closes. God is here, and the whole point of what we've been doing, he's revealing the kingdom. What have we learned about the kingdom, the Father? Because it's real, it's at work. It's not, he's not separated, he's not out there. And he leaves trusting that the Spirit will help keep that alive in us, that we know that that kingdom is at work here, now. It's not gone. The Spirit is here. What does this reveal about the kingdom? Just, if we can briefly, what do these, all these I am's? Well, the first I am, I found was back in chapter 7, where he says, I will be with you only a little while longer, and then I will go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Yeah, I love He's that. speaking that this re reveals that the kingdom is transcendent. It transcends our earthly experience. It's, not, it's Heaven is here, and it's, it's as it says, it was from Revelation, it, uh, it is he who was and is and is to come. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you picked that up, Mike, because I, um, I think it is the first one, and he says, where I will, read it again. Uh, this is uh, chapter seven. You cannot find me. Where? Uh, you will look for me, but not find me, and where I am, yeah, yeah. Although he keeps saying over and over 
afterwards, I am, I am, I am, I am. He keeps linking himself. So clearly the kingdom has that aspect. God the Father is not present except through Christ, in Christ. So he's there. The kingdom is being revealed. Although there is clearly a heaven that transcends this world. What can we say before we leave? What can we say about the kingdom? What is Christ showing from these I am's? Well, it's eternal. He is with us. Still. I think it's showing there's many, many aspects to the kingdom. He's the bread of heaven. Food. He's the light. That's how we see. He's uh, the father, the good shepherd. You know, he's, he's all these. I mean, it's not in here, but... Revelation, the first, the last, the Alpha, the Roma. He's everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. More than everything. Yeah. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as it is on earth as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. Comment on that. <laughs> Where are you going with that? I'm just saying. Heaven on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. Present, God is here. Present. Yeah. And it's interesting, we pray for that. I, I love that. I, oftentimes in our family, I will say that. Um, that will be done on earth as it, let it be here. Let it be, that's a prayer. Let it be here as it is in heaven. To, to, I've told you, I've encouraged you, when you pray, imagine Christ, Mary. But imagine that. Um, let it be here as it is in heaven with you. However you imagine that, whatever we're doing with it here, imagine that here. And be in that place, that apophatic. When we, you know, whatever we do. Did you? Who, did somebody? Doc was. Did I hear somebody? Any last comments on the I am? Well, I think you go back to Moses talking to the burning bush. Who am I am? I mean, so that in itself talks about the kingdom, and that's where it came from. So mm -hmm. he's reusing it. But Christ keeps revealing it. That's the whole point. Christ revealed it. He keeps, he keeps revealing the kingdom. It's there. Again and again and again in some other facet, some other aspect. The kingdom is the I am with all. I'm the door, the good shepherd, you know, all of them. I'm the way, the truth. Um, it's here. It's now. He didn't take it away when he left. He sent the comforter. Um, so the kingdom is no longer out there. It's here. That's why we got Hopkins in the wind hover. That's why we've got that little girl pricking herself, you know, and talking, you know, we've gone through these. He's here. Can we see him? Um, how's our belief? Um, okay. We finish John next week and we're just going to, I'm just going to touch on some things um, relating to Revelation. Okay.